you guys are here, those that are watching online, we're in the eighth chapter of Second Samuel. Check. Okay. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was uh, talking to someone before I came up here, and he was telling me how busy he had been today. And I thought about everyone else. Uh, we live in busy times. If I can ever get this in my sweatsuit, I might just leave it right here. Woo! But, uh, God is good. It's somehow, some way, when we struggle through those things, when we go through busyness of our days, when it's almost more easier to stay at home, and the Holy Spirit prompts you to come, the Holy Spirit prompts you to turn on the internet and watch. And I believe there's a blessing in that, so I'm thankful to that. Chapter 8, David Right now, he's at the pinnacle of his uh, career as Israel's king. This is when he pins Psalm 68, by the way, celebrating God's glory and granting victory to his people. Psalm 68, verse 1 says, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. Even though God had promised David All of these victories, these pagan nations, these pagan kings continue to war with David. Uh, But David stays confident in the word of the Lord, so it really doesn't matter. And we'll see in in, in, uh, chapter 8, David is going to turn his focus and his army toward uh, getting rid of these pagan kings around Israel. Psalm 68, 2 tells us, As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. It will always be like that. If we're on Christ's team, we're going to have victory. So we'll see these battles that's recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And David, once again, is trusting in the Lord. It says in in chapter 8, verse 6, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And as I was reading over chapter 8, it sounds like an action movie because David, all of a sudden, he's, you think after he heard the word from the Lord, as uh, Pastor Brian had taught last week, that, hey, I love you, David, but you're not going to build the temple. Uh, He gives him a reason, and then in the later, we're going to find out he's going to say, because you're a man of war. But this doesn't stop David, because David, the Lord looks at his heart, and God blesses him because of his heart. And so David begins to move because he holds on to the promises of the Lord. It says, after this, and after this connects the uh, record of a military conquest with the prior events, especially God's promise, once again, to secure David's throne. And we're not sure how much time elapsed from the time he begins warring with these nations around him to the time it's completed. 
but you'll see one victory. We'll see one victory after another because David is on the Lord's side. And the promises that God had made to Abraham, David is the one who gets to fulfill most of them. Genesis 15, 18 tells us, to your offspring, God speaking to Abraham, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river of Euphrates. So verse 1 says, after this, it came to pass. Once again, David is sitting on his throne. The kingdom is unified. The ark has been brought back to Mount Zion. And then you would think David would take a break. You would think David would say, look at this great nation that I've built. But David is wanting to do more with the Lord. And it says in 2 Samuel 7, 16, this is what he said, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God speaking to David. It says in verse 1 again, that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg, Amma from the hand of the Philistines. So the Philistines had, remember, they had routed Saul's army and killed Saul, Israel's first king. And when David takes the throne, David takes the throne and he has enemies because of Saul with the Philistines, with the Moabites. They're all surrounding him. Half of his territory has been taken uh, by these other kings, but David It doesn't bother him. He continues to fight because he knows the Lord is on his side. So David begins this military campaign. He's on the offensive now, and he will stay that way. Metheg Amma, we don't know the location, but uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 18, verse 1 tells us, after this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines, subdued them, and took Gath and its towns from the hand of the Philistines. So complete was this conquest, the Philistines pop up every once in a while, but they never become the threat that they used to be. And David will rule his kingdom, even with the Philistines. They they jump up every once in a while, but they're never that kind of threat again. So he's securing one flank. He moves on. He begins to fight with the Moabites. It says in verse 2, Then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. Get this picture in your head. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. This will end the reign of any of the Moabites, just like it happened to the Philistines. I don't understand Theologians have different reasons why David would slaughter the Moabites the way he did, because remember, his great-grandmother was a Moabite, Ruth. But he puts them to death, and he saves some for tribute here. And one reason they give why David did this, when David was fleeing from Saul, he took his mom and dad to, to to Achish, and, he, and they think at that time the Moabites came and either dealt treacherously with them or put them to death there. And so David, he gets his revenge back from here. And also remember the Moabites, when Israel was doing well and Balak asked Balaam to come curse 
uh, uh, the children of Israel? Well, we know Balaam couldn't do it. So he says, this is what you need to do if you want God's wrath to be turned to Israel. Bring these Moabite women out and intermingle with them. And that's what he did. And sure enough, God's wrath turned on them. So the Moabites, they were always a thorn in the Israelite side. And David is getting rid of them right now. Verse 3 tells us, David also defeated Hadad-Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Israel land to this day does not run down to the river Euphrates anymore. That will never happen again until Jesus is sitting on his throne in the millennial kingdom. Verse 4 tells us, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses. He does that because, remember, Josiah, they had begun to worship horses and chariots. So David does hamstring many of them, but still we'll find out he leaves some for his own chariots. He says, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad-Ezer, king of Zobad, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servant and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. David's victories not only subdued evil kingdoms, but it also extended godly rule in that area, and that was always good. And through these garrisons, these outposts that David would leave his military men there, that would also bring peace in those areas. So it gave Israel control over valuable uh, routes, outposts, caravans that would pass through in that territory. So David is moving and he's setting up his kingdom and expanding his kingdom. Verse 7 tells us, And David took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadad-Ezer, and brought them to Jerusalem, and he would hang these shields. They will be hung in the temple, and it would testify to the faithfulness of God's word to his people. Also from Bethah and from Bethrathai, cities of Hadad-Ezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. Verse 9, when Toy king of Hamath heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadad-Ezer, and, and by defeating the Syrians, he also went and defeated the, Arme- the Arameans. So what he did as he defeats these uh, two different kingdoms, he's making peace with one of them because they will bring tribute to him also. So he defeats Hadad-Ezer, and Toy evidently sees what's going on, on and understands what's going on. He wants to make peace with David. We all heard this old saying, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, that's what's happening right here. Verse 10 tells us, then Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadad-Ezer and defeated him. For Hadad-Ezer had been at war with Toy, there it is, and Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. David is taking these riches and he's putting them away because even though he cannot build the temple, he's getting all of the material and all of the money so that his son Solomon will be able to do that. 
King David also dedicated these these to the Lord along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Syria, from Moab, from people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, all of these perennial enemies of the Lord, David is taking them out. And from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. We know that David is a picture of Jesus Christ. Christ is our king. He's not only our king, the believer's king. He goes to battle for us. He's our mighty warrior. And so as David is defeating nation after nation after nation, he's walking with the Lord. He's in obedience with the Lord. It's a picture. It's a type of what Jesus has done. He's defeated the number one enemy, Satan, and he defeats our enemies day in and day out, even though we may not see it, we may not understand it, but any and every victory we have, it's because we are relying on Jesus Christ. And it's not enough to rely on Jesus Christ and then we, in our own energy, think we're doing the work because God is good enough. And he's gracious enough to allow us to do the work until we say, hey, I give up. I can't win this battle. I give up. But if we rely on Jesus, if I'm struggling with something, if there's a stronghold in my life and I'm praying sincerely and I'm seeking his face and I'll allow him to do the work in me, I will have victory. He's faithful to do that. And so David is a picture of Jesus as he's going through nation after nation winning these victories for us. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 says this, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespassings, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Every sin, anytime you committed a sin, whether it came down in the Old Testament or the New Testament to a flogging, or if they put you to death, while they flogged you, they would have the, the, every sin you've committed until you confess that sin. So when it says he has removed, wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that's all our sins Jesus took, Jesus bore. It says, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. All Scripture testifies that on the whole of men, men never, unless it's a work of God, repents of their sins and surrenders to the Lord. That's why you have all of these nations warring and fighting with David. David knows he's going to be victorious, but they never give in. And the Bible teaches us, even though we live in a world like that, unless the Holy Spirit moved like he moved in our lives, no one would ever come to Christ. And Jesus still tells us we must be harmless as doves. We must be gentle. We must treat people with love and respect even the unbeliever, hoping that Jesus, that the Father might bring them to repentance. I like what 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, this verses 8 through 10. Paul says, 
so affectionately longing for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil for laboring night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. We preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. Living holy lives is important. It's important to God. That's why we are still down here as believers. It's important to the unbeliever that he sees our lives. The Bible says we are living epistles known and read by all men. And so with that, people still, the majority, does not turn and give their lives to Jesus Christ, no matter how uprightly we live. And it's because the God of this world has blinded their minds that they can't see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And they, many will only believe when Jesus comes back. And that's what it tells us here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm going to read it all, verses 3 to 10. Paul says this, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. That's what the area around us should be doing if they ever come in here, boast about the love that we have for one another. Of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Just living lives day in and day out, we suffer with sickness, illness, just being worn down, all that is suffering for the kingdom. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus, here it is, this is how the kingdom will be taken, exactly what David is doing. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Verse 13 tells us, and David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. Now, this wasn't David's motive. David's motive was being obedient to the Lord. The Holy Spirit tells us in, in verse 6 and 14, it says, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So David knew it was because he was being obedient to the Lord that he had victory. 2 Samuel 7, 9 had said this, and have made you a great name, speaking of David, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And through, once again, his obedience, his faith in the Lord and trusting in God's word that God has spoken to him, David, and we've been talking about this in the book of Joshua, David received 
everything that God had offered him. Verse 14 tells us, and this was very wise of him, he also put garrison outposts in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. David took steps to guard against future wars by putting these armed men there. That's being protective, and we should be protective. The men of the household, we're the priests, and we should protect our family, probably more spiritually than physically. We need to be in the word. We need to be in prayer with our wives, with our children as they grow up. Paul did the same thing with the, when he was on the island of Miletus. He was fixing to leave, and it says this in Acts 20, 28. Paul says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purposed, purchased with his own blood. Because Paul knew, he goes on to say that fierce wolves will come in among you, sparing, not sparing the flock, speaking perverse things. Paul says, to draw away disciples after them. The only way we can combat those things, we must be in the word of God, we must be in prayer, and we must stay in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the true church of God. Verse 15 tells us, so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. That's very important, especially these days, judgment and justice. It doesn't happen in our culture that much anymore. Ecclesiastes 8.11 tells us, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And we see that all across our nation. There's no repercussions to sin. And it's happening more and more because there's not judgment and there's not justice. But David ruled with judgment and justice. Joab, and then he speaks of his administration here. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Eluid, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahalimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Zariah was the scribe. Benaniah, Benaniah was a bad dude. We're going to learn a lot much more about him. Benaniah, the son of Jehoda, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And these were the king's bodyguards. These were some tough guys. And David's sons were chief ministers. So chapter 9, salvation, the Bible teaches all the way through, is from the Lord. And if we are who we say we are, we should be living, transforming lives. And we're going to see this here. Psalms 1 verse 3 says this, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. Whoso leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. That's the promise. John, Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him 
bears much fruit, says almost the same thing. That's the vital principle of a transforming life. And our lives are transformed first by repenting of our sins and seeking the Lord Jesus Christ. And it continues to be transformed when we are in the word, when we are in prayer, and we are being obedient to the Lord. We can't help but to grow into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 6 and 7 we looked at the zeal of David and his worship. Chapter 8 showed the blessings in, in, in uh, David's military conquest. And now chapter 9 shows God's grace transforming personal relationships. That's what we'll look at. Verse 1 says, now David said, now picture this. He's on his throne. He's had these victories. He's defeated most of his enemies around him. He has confidence in the Lord. The Lord, not one of his promises to David has failed. So he's kicked back on the throne. And it says, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may strike down who may be a threat to my throne? (laughs) No, it does not say that. We have to understand that Mephibosheth, he was the only surviving heir to King Saul. And so that made him really a a threat to David's kingship because it was customary. If a king came to the throne, he would put to death all of the males so they could not take a coup to his throne. And I'm sure that people knew where Mephibosheth was. And David is sitting back. David, remember, is a man after God's own heart. And so it says, is, he says, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul? And these are sweet words, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Now, if a man, a fragile fleshly man can say that and have that kind of heart. How much our Savior has a heart for us. And all of this love and all of this kindness is because of his relationship with Jonathan. David wanted to perform an act of kindness. He had made a covenant relationship with Jonathan. So he's sitting back. He says, oops, almost forgot. I need to take care of that. Because remember when David fought Goliath, right then and there, it was Jonathan because he had a heart for the Lord. He gave him all of his armor and said, hey, I know that you're going to be king. And right then and there, they made a covenant. And David understands what a covenant relationship. Matter of fact, that word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed. And it's, it's a covenant relationship that cannot be broken. And if it is broken, it's a curse to the one that broke it. So he thinks of this, and he begins to ask the question, this covenant came about because a man, and, and Lord, I know the Holy Spirit wrote the scriptures, but I would have put a little bit more in there about Jonathan. Jonathan. Because Jonathan had a special heart. 
for him to dust his hand off and say, hey, this is yours, and I'll serve you. You have to. And they had a tight relationship once again. He'd give his life for David and vice versa. And my point is you never know by your words and your friendship that you show one another, and we should have brotherly love towards one another. But I'm talking about even a stranger It can be an unbeliever, but when we show love and speak kindly and encourage people, it's water for a thirsty soul, and David knew that because when David was down and out and he goes to the king's uh, command post, nobody but himself, it was Jonathan who took him in and loved him. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 2 says this, You are our epistles, once again, written in our hearts, known and read by all men. We should remember that every day, and we should walk that out. Verse 2 tells us, and there was a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. Ziba means statue. So when they had had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. So they respected the king. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show? Here it is again, the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, I wonder, did he think about it for a second? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. And this was what I believe Ziba thought, because Ziba is going to have a problem with Mephibosheth in a few chapters. And I think Ziba said this, so David would say, oh, we won't worry about him. But he says, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. And Lodabar means not a pastor. It's a region that is barren, unfruitful, Nothing will grow there, and that's where Mephibosheth dwells. Remember, Mephibosheth was crippled when Saul went to battle, and his maid picked him up. Now, I don't think his maid picked him up and ran and dropped him. Could be, and he became crippled. Most theologians think that she put him on a horse. They got on the horse, and he fell off the horse, and that's how. He became crippled, but he's crippled and he's defined by his ailment. You know, people can be defined by, oh, he's an alcoholic. Oh, he's a druggie. Oh, he's this or that, or she's this or that. But we're about to see that God is going to turn all of this around. And it's the only reason why he does this is because he's a gracious God. He's a long-suffering God. Mephibosheth loses his mobility. Mephibosheth loses his inheritance because he should have been one that goes to the throne also. And now he's in a barren place. And you know he's thinking, God, do you love me? If you love me, why? If you love me, how could you let these things happen to me? And he's in exile in Israel Never, never thinking or could imagine 
the blessing that's about to come his way. But that's the type of God we serve. That's the kind of God we serve. And he tells us this, as as he's wrestling with all of this, Romans, I want to read something. Romans 5.14 says, because what's going to happen, Jonathan was in the royal line. We know that. And I want to contrast Saul's line along with the line of Adam. Because he was born, Mephibosheth was born, born in royalty. And as mankind, we was born in royalty from Adam. And, it, and it's going to fall out the same way when Adam sinned. We all know we became lame by his sin. But we can't get away. That's, that's winking at sin. Because it's not like, doggone Adam, you blew it. The Bible, the scripture teaches that we were in Adam and we sinned when Adam sinned. So we had a champion and his name is Adam. We have a better champion and his name is Jesus Christ. So we were in Adam. And so when Adam sinned, we sinned in him and we can't say it was Adam's fault. Let me read something. Romans 5, 14 says this. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Speaking of Jesus Christ. Now, this is what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 9 and 10 says. And this will show us that we were in Adam when he sinned. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was in his loins. So he paid the tithe also. So long before Mephibosheth knew anything, before he was born, because of Saul, he had rebelled against King David. Long before uh, he fell, he had fell in Saul. And we can say that's not right, but there's a bigger blessing because none of us are perfect. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But yet and still, because Jesus Christ never sinned in word, thought, or deed, we have his righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith in what he did. And so it works out the same way here. And so He's in a place where it's barren. There's no fruit. There's nothing going on. He's disgraced. He's outcast. Nobody is thinking about him. The Bible always speaks. When it speaks of Mephibosheth, it speaks of his lameness. You never see Mephibosheth unless it's speaking about, and he was lame in his feet. And we, once again, Mankind, we are lame. The Bible says we are enemies of God. We are children of wrath. It even goes so far to say in the book of John, we are children of the devil. Mephibosheth is just lame. But you and I, the Bible says we were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. But God is still going to make a way. 
for those he loves. It says in verse 5, then King David sent. I love the King James because the King James says he went and fetched him out. And that's, that's what the Lord does. Then King David sent and brought him out because he could not walk. The same thing with the Holy Spirit. We were dead, and he brings us out. It says, out of the house of Macher, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. And he says that in verse 5 also, making sure he emphasized it. We could do nothing. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 6 tells us, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, think of everything he's thinking. I'm sure he's not cleaned up. I'm sure he's dirty. I'm sure he's filthy. And he's thinking the whole time he's on that cart or that wagon, they found me out. I'm about to die. King David hates me because he hated my dad. And truly, that's how the mind works because David didn't even hate his dad. And he's thinking all of these negative things like we can think about our father. Lord, if you love me, Lord, you're just waiting on me to mess up so you can just banish me from your kingdom. But God is not like that. We're finding out how God is by how David is working here. It says, when he gets into his presence, verse 6, he says, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. I bet he was trembling. I bet he was fearful while he's down on his face waiting for the sword to come. But David doesn't do that. It says, then David said to Mephibosheth, and I'm sure he says this softly and tenderly. I bet he said it like he had heard his dad, Jonathan, speak to him. And he answered, here's your servant. Understand, Mephibosheth would have been happy right there just to be a servant of the Lord, just to serve the Lord. Jesus said in John 15, 15, no longer, speaking of his disciple, his born ones, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Romans 8, 16 and 17, the beginning of 17 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. He could have saved us and that would have been enough, but that's not God's heart. That's not who he is. He does exceedingly abundantly more than all we could ask or think, and that's what he's doing here. So verse 7 says, so David said to him, do not fear, because David sensed his humility. If he would have came in there, I believe, being prideful, I don't think David would have killed him, but David would have said, okay, take him back to Lodabar. Humility goes a long way. That's why our Savior was covered in meekness and humility. That, that's the reason that the Beatitudes starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If we don't cross that hurdle, 
If we don't go over that hurdle, we could never do the rest. It all starts with meekness, poor of spirit, understanding that we have nothing to give you, Lord. The only thing I have to give you is my sin, and I can't carry that myself. But if you would allow me, I will give them to you because I know you bore them for me. And that's what he sees, and that's what David senses in Mephibosheth here. And then notice what he says, for I will surely show you kindness. Once again, Hesed, that great covenant word, steadfast love, steadfast, faithful devotion. I will be devoted to you. We have been sealed, the Bible says, I think in Ephesians, with the spirit of redemption. That's the wedding band. The Lord, I don't believe, takes that away. He will take us home before he has to take that away. That's why it says when Paul says, you guys aren't honoring the Lord's Supper. That's why many of you are sick. That's why many of you have fallen asleep. He loves you that much. He says, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and you will restore and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. The father shows us kindness the same way. And the son, it says this in John 6, 39, this is the will of the father who sent me, that all he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Verse 8 tells us, then he bowed himself, Mephibosheth did, and said, what is your servant? He shows his humility that you should look upon such a dead dog as I. You really understand or you really know if a person understands God's grace by how they react to things, how they take things. If they think they, somebody owes them something or they, they are entitled to something or they are gracious and once again, walking in humility. He says, who am I that you would even look at me? I'm a dead dog. David said the same thing when Saul was chasing him and he was up on the mountain and Saul was in the valley and he asked Saul, why are you chasing me? I'm nothing but a dead dog. And then he says, I'm nothing but a flea on the dog. And David's point is the reason why David is where he is, it always boils down to humility. If we walk in humility, James says, God, he will raise you up in due time. We don't have to strive. We don't have to fight. We allow God to do it because when we allow God to do it, we are there and no one can do anything about it. He says in verse 9, and the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your your master's son all that belonged to Saul and, and to all his house. You, therefore... Notice, you therefore and your sons and your servant shall work the land for him. The Bible says, for it is God who works to will and to do of his good pleasure. He saved us. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us. And truly, the Holy Spirit does the work. But we must yield. We must allow him to work. That's what's happening here. Mephibosheth can't do a thing. But 
they're going to work the land for him. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. The Holy Spirit tells us four times that Mephibosheth ate continually at the king's table. And anytime we, we talk and we speak about eating in the scriptures, it, it speaks of fellowship. And that's what's happening here. Mephibosheth is having fellowship with the king. And I'm sure that David sat right next to Mephibosheth and he told him about his dad, what kind of man he was and how they were friends and how they loved one another. And God does the same thing with us. The only reason we sit at the table is because of Jehovah's son, Jesus Christ. He did the heavy lifting He did the work. He called us, and then he gave us the grace to be obedient to that call. Jesus put it this way, fear not. It is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. We all know the scriptures, and I cannot find, and I looked, and I found some here and there, but I cannot find a a better piece of scripture that shows the heart of God. Because Mephibosheth, he said he was a dead dog. He had nothing. He could do nothing. He was helpless. He was barren the way I was, the way you were when you were an unbeliever, without hope and without God in the world. But God, he calls and he draws. And that's the kind of heart we should have. The same heart David had. Because God called us to his table, you guys. And we need to treat people and we need to react to people and act toward people the way David does with Mephibosheth. Love on people. Speak the truth in love. But first, we must build relationships. And as we're building those relationships, then they will see the change in our lives and we can begin to tell them about Jesus Christ. But we will never win anyone to Christ by saying, you're a sinner. You did that wrong. You did this wrong. No, we must love on people and, and, and expend the grace of God. Any questions or comments? But Mephibosheth is my favorite story of the grace of God because it's me. And believe it or not, it's you. We could do nothing and we could never do anything to win his grace. But God does all the heavy lifting. Let's pray. Lord, you know, as Galatians speaks of, you started well. You started in the spirit. Now you are trying to do this in the flesh. You're trying to win me over. You're trying to be obedient in the flesh. And it doesn't work like that. It's by your grace. Salvation is your work from beginning to end. And Lord, 
That's why we as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, should never look down on anyone, an unbeliever, Lord, because the same pit that you pulled us out of, and it might not seem like such a pit to us, but every pit is alike to you because we're dead in trespasses and sins. And we should be speaking a kind word in a season and in this time. We, we never know if we speak of love and gratitude how it's going to refresh your weary soul. So, Father, remind us where you brought us from and where we're going and rem- remind us that it's your work, Father, not ours. And it's only because of that hesed, that devotional, that covenant relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, that we can be heirs and joint heirs of Jesus Christ, Father. Lord, we love you. Lord, we continue to lift up Joanne Shabelsky. Father, we pray that you would uh, show forth your grace, that you would encourage them, that you would undergird them, Father, that you would just supernaturally give them peace, supernaturally give them strength, motivate them because of your love to hang in there. And Lord, we ask that you would heal her completely, Father, because we know there's nothing too hard for you, Father. May we continuously pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, Lord. May we spur one another on to love and good deeds. Lord, would you watch over Calvary Restore, Father God? Would you keep us safe? Would we understand that the days are growing darker, Father? That just because this Wednesday we can come in here and open the Bible and enjoy your word, I believe there's a day that's coming soon that it's going to be tough to do that. So let us do it while we can, while we have the freedom to do that, Father. May we be the salt and the light that you've called us to be, and may may we be those living epistles known and read of all men. And we ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God.